This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Day is June 27, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the elegant Simon Belanger. Dude, I love this first topic. Let's just do it. Let's get right into it. We're live. Hit, <laughs> hit me with this. Okay, well, I'm sure Mo, I don't know if everyone has seen this, but it's um, news came out that uh, Elon Musk issued a challenge to Mark Zuckerberg, but I'll, I'll call him Zuckerberg because that's, Cause what, that's I what we do here. It <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> to have a cage match fight, and it sounds like Zuck agreed. So UFC president Dana White said that he spoke to both billionaires and that he thinks the fight would bring in the most revenue ever for a UFC fight. And typically UFC pay-per-view costs about $80, but he thinks they could charge as much as a hundred dollars for the fight. And that it could bring over 1 billion in revenues. The largest fight before that in terms of revenues was McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather in 2017, which brought in more than $600 million in revenue. Now, the billionaires have been going at it for some time now, for those not aware. Uh, Musk had even deleted, deleted his Facebook pages of Tesla and SpaceX in 2018, and he said that Facebook was lame. Not surprising with Elon Musk and both billionaires have also been on opposite ends of the AI debate with Musk saying that there could eventually be some grave consequences to AI and obviously Zuckerberg using the opposite end of the argument here and recently they both have been at odds because there's reports that Meta is working on building a rival to Twitter. Now for those who are not aware, actually, I'll ask you a question. So who would you pick if you had to bet on the fight? And I'll just say that Musk does have the size advantage, so he's 6'2". Um, and apparently, I've heard a lot of people say like he's a big guy, but he turned 52. Um, by the time you've heard this, actually, I think his birthday is like today or tomorrow. And Zuckerberg is 5'7 and 39 years old, so he's on the smaller side younger but apparently he's been doing jujitsu for a couple of years now and he's recently won some uh, kind of low-key tournaments so anyways what do you think about all of this i'm so glad you brought up the story because business news okay you know that's one thing that's that's exciting for for guys like us you know and, and the wonderful listeners of this show but business news of that the business leaders <laughs> are fighting in a cage match. Okay, now we're talking. For me, this isn't even close. Zuck is in way, way better shape. Yeah. <laughs> he trains martial arts. He actually posted this mirror selfie on uh, Veterans Day that he, he was doing the, the Murph with the, the weight vest. and Oh, yeah. He actually like looks pretty jacked. Um, I'm not going to be honest. Now, he is short, and Musk probably has like like a hundred pounds on him and he's a lot taller, but he's also a lot older uh, than Zuckerberg. And the dude looks like and a he's bag. Not, of, he's not fit. Yeah, he's not fit <laughs> The either. dude looks like a bag of milk with his shirt off. He doesn't look jacked on his yacht like, like Bezos does. Um, he looks like a bag of milk. Now he is heavier. He is taller, but he would have to be training intensely for this fight. 
Um, and right now, Zuck looks like he's in fighting form. So it really depends on when the fight is. If it is tomorrow, Zuck taps out Elon in the first round. If it if he has some time to train, he's so much taller and bigger that now we have like an actual fight because you have someone who's training, but someone who's like a lot bigger. You maybe have a fair fight, but this happens tomorrow. Zuck, uh, who trains jujitsu, will tap him out very quickly. Yeah, and I mean, I was listening to the All In podcast, and they were talking about it. a couple of guys know him quite well, Elon Musk, and I think David Sachs even said like. I'm actually afraid for Eli, <laughs> which is kind of funny because, yeah, they were saying the same thing. Like, Zuckerberg seems in really good shape. And um, the other thing, too, is how, like, where will Elon have the time to spend to get fit and learn martial arts? Like, he's a, he's a busy fellow with SpaceX, Twitter, um, you know, Tesla. Te- Tesla. <laughs> I mean... I I don't know where you'd find the time. Like, if you want to get better and fit, you probably need to dedicate at least an hour and a half, two hours every day um, to be able to do that. So I don't know whether he cuts back on sleep or not, and that's probably not the best thing either. This is one of those things where (laughs) it's like when when, uh, Elon bought Twitter and he tried to backpedal out. He's going to have to try to backpedal out of this because he will get his ass kicked. Um, and, you know, I, he's not a guy you want to bet against. I mean, neither guy is a guy you want to bet against because they're just, they, they continue to prove people wrong time and time again. That's, that's what their career is built off of, is doing things people say are impossible, is basically who they are as people. So I don't want to bet against any of them, but if the fight is tomorrow, first round, uh, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Musk, the milk bag will be tapped out pretty quick. All right. Speaking of uh, second news piece here, Meta is, uh, so this is very related here. They're supposed to block news in Canada as this bill is forcing companies to pay for content to become law. And Meta has confirmed that it intends to stop making news available to Facebook and Instagram in Canada, ahead of this pending federal law. So that would force the company to pay to publish news content. And the bill would require Google and Meta to pay media outlets for news content they share or otherwise repurpose on their platforms. The company announced changes to Instagram and Facebook on Thursday after the Senate passed the bill. Uh, the both companies have opposed the proposed law, of course. <laughs> it's like, hey, you guys have to pay for all this free content. And they're like, we don't agree. So shocker. So yeah, the, apparently the law is set to level the playing field between online advertising giants and the shrinking news industry. So to me, this is too little too late uh, you, last week we did the, the the news on Bell Media cutting off a lot of jobs around their digital assets, their media assets, their radio assets. So big shakeup. Look, I, I mean, this th- this is like wake up. It's not uh, 2006 when they made Facebook anymore. I I don't know what's gonna happen here. Well, yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, too, even if you take out Facebook, Google, 
Um, it's just the way content is being consumed by people. It's just different now than it was 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I remember one of my first jobs. I remember like it was these ticketing booths where people would park in uh, Gatineau Park, not far from Ottawa to go and visit and they had to pay. And I was in that booth and I took money and gave them the ticket for the day. Right. And it was sometimes super dead because it was raining outside so no one was coming and I would bring a newspaper well I haven't read a newspaper and I don't know how long and it's just a different way that people consume media and I don't think it's gonna really do much to be honest I don't think it's really gonna move the needle I think the big companies like uh, Google and Meta will probably just not pay for it and people will just find ways to bypass that whether it's you know, getting their information somewhere else or, you know, using VPN to access other content that's not from Canada. I'd be really curious on like what kind of unit economics we're talking about here. Like, is it so high that like the unit unit economics fall apart for Facebook and Google to do this? Or like, I'd, I'd be curious on like digging in on what that actually means because if they're saying we're just not going to go there, then it's clearly like doesn't make sense for them to, to show it at all. Yeah, there could be also a bit of game theory in place too, right? Because Canada is a relatively small country. Uh, probably doesn't move the needle all that much for them. But if they start abiding by these rules and, you know, paying for content, what happens if the U.S. comes in and has a similar law? Then there's precedent and the U.S. has the expectation that, you know, Facebook and Meta will actually do that. So I think it's actually they're looking at this from a bigger picture point of view where they don't want to set that precedent and then have other countries that have more importance to their bottom line following along. Hey, you're all right, Simone. That was actually uh, a good call because that's probably exactly yeah. what's happening here. <laughs> it's a, it is a precedent setting type uh, type thing. All right, let's move on. Yesterday we got uh, Canadian CPI, we got the inflation print. What did we what did we come in at? Well, it was actually this morning, but uh, I guess it it will be oh. a couple <laughs> days ago when you this is released, but that's okay. It just came out today and I'm not even sure what day of the week it is today. So. It's all good. Summer's approaching. Canada Day was actually Saint Jean Baptiste uh, last weekend in Quebec. Uh Joyeux Saint Jean Baptiste for any of our Quebec listeners. Now uh For the May 2023 CPI, so the headline number was actually quite good at 3.4% year over year, and that's compared to 4.4% in April. Um, However, as people know, hopefully by now, headline numbers rarely tell the whole story. So I think it's it's pretty good overall. It's definitely trending in the right direction. So the... month-over-month increase was still relatively high at 0.4%, so versus April, but it was definitely better than April versus March, which was 0.7%, so again, trending the right way here. Food was up 8.3% year-over-year, so still quite high, and 0.8% month-over-month. They did have some notes saying that food prices remain elevated, but are even more elevated when you're looking at restaurants. Shelter was up 4.7% year-over-year and 0.4% month-over-month. Gasoline was down 18% year-over-year and down 0.8% month-over-month. And energy was also down 12.4% year-over-year and 0.8% month-over-month. And obviously, energy is kind of the bigger bucket here. 
But I think that's important to know because I've been hammering on this for quite some time. And even the Bank of Canada will acknowledge that if you look at some of their, uh, whether it's TIFF or some of the deputies that uh, will do some speeches and conferences, is they are well aware of that. And anyone looking at the headline number should always look at the categories because sometimes it does tell a different story. And services remain sticky here at 4.6% year-over-year and 0.5% month-over-month. All other categories except transportation were up year-over-year. So overall, I think it's a pretty good, but it's not as good, I think, as the headline numbers indicate. And the three measures of core CPI, which is really what the Bank of Canada tends to focus on because it zeroes out uh, both energy and food prices, it got better, but it's still relatively high. So the three measures came in at 4, 5.2%, 3.9%, and 3.8%, which is slightly down compared to April. So it is trending to the right, right direction. But again, I think it's very dependent. There's a lot of data here that could be very dependent on gas prices as a whole, not obviously uh, core CPI, which strips that out. Now, a couple other things of note that's uh, interesting. Mortgage interest Cost rose to the largest increase on record. It was up 29.9% year over year. That's actually following an increase of 28.5% in April. So obviously that was fueled by Canadians that are renewing their mortgages at higher interest rates. And it has an impact on the shelter cost component of the CPI index. And what's interesting is that the Bank of Canada raising the rates to cool inflation down as a whole, but... Higher rates actually mean higher mortgage costs, which also puts pressure on inflation. So it's kind of this uh, (laughs) two-sided beast here when they're raising interest rate because it does increase inflation from that basket. Obviously, it's not, you know, extremely large component of the CPI basket, but it's not that small either. The commodity hit by inflation the hardest, eggs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you check out the local grocery store. I was in the States this week and I bought two and a half dozen, which is like, you know, big, a big tray for $4 and 19 cents. That's pretty good. I was like, I was like, oh man, this is so much cheaper. Have we checked a trueflation lately? Uh, Trueflation, trueflation has the U.S. inflation rate at 2.46% compared to the U.S. government reported 4%. Yeah. So trueflation is reporting much lower than the Fed number, yet they were much, much higher than the Fed number in 2022 and 2021, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the trueflation, I was uh, reading something where it's very interesting, where it tends to just be, it tends to follow CPI, but more volatile so it's more volatile on the upside and more volatile on the downside um, which tends to be the trend so obviously they use a different methodology to calculate it but i think whenever you're looking at it whether you want to look at the government cpi data or something like trueflation i think it's i've said this and i will say it again it's a just an indicator i think it's really important for people to just look at how things are being impacted for themselves right because uh depending on what you're spending money on uh you may feel the increase much more much less than you know what is indicated by cpi figures yeah you're right i mean just looking at the categories 
it, it's it's going to be different for every person. You can see here, uh, food and non-alcoholic beverages total, food at home, food away from home, uh, which is that's come down quite a bit. Just you can see here on the screen, yeah. it's all very interesting, right? Like, dude, <laughs> this is unrelated. Why is food away from home? There is such high inflation on the tip number that they hand me on that little machine yeah. every. It, okay, so before it went up from the lowest to, to from fifteen to eighteen, and now I don't even see eighteen anymore. I never see at eighteen anymore. Now it's like twenty eight, twenty five, and twenty, or really? like. Okay. 25, 22, 20. It's All, different. Like, it's ridiculous, man. Yeah, it's different here a little bit. I guess they want to force you to manually input it if you want to go lower. Yeah, which yeah. is so awkward. Like, as soon as you go into the manual, like, you're so, you're so cheap. Um, I have no problem tipping for excellent service. But if, if there is horrendous service... You think I'm going to press that middle button at 22%? You are off your rocker. There's no way. Um, so I'm, I'm standing by my stance. Uh, I, don't, I, I know I might get roasted, but I don't care. I think that the inflation on the inflation of the tip on that little machine, you, tur you turn around that iPad, you made me a coffee and expect 22%. I don't know. It's better be a, a damn good coffee, Simo. And that's, yeah. that's what I think. I mean, I get annoyed with um, when there's... Now more and more places tip for things that are like super easy to do. Like you go <laughs> yeah. and grab a coffee at Starbucks and it's literally a drip coffee, right? They just kind of pour it down, put the lid on. And then it's like prompts you like, oh, your coffee's five or five dollars. So you do want to give one, two or three dollars or whatever it is. I'm like, really? Like, I mean, yeah, I and, shouldn't and have if, to if tip like for a, that. A yeah. Coffee shop, and like you know, I see them making my coffee. It's like a process, you know. Yeah. But I'd actually like to know this. If anyone listening uh, will write into our inbox here, if they know this, I would like to know if I tip at a like multi-billion-dollar company, like a Starbucks or or whatever, like a, a burrito. Uh, Chipotle burrito. Are those tips actually going out to the employees making minimum wage? Like, I sure as hell hope so, but I don't know that. I cannot confirm that. It's not like a restaurant where they do a proper tip out at the end. Yeah, yeah, I think they do, but I'm not sure. I always assumed that the employees that were working on that day would kind of share the tip. Um, yeah. That's how I thought it worked, but I could could be wrong. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> like be the, good to know, the, yeah. the, the like because the people making my beautiful burrito, I'm happy to give them a tip. They deserve my tip. But if that's just going into the bottom line of Chipotle, the public company, I, I I'll never tip again. Like you know what I mean? I, I they won't get another cent from me. All right, Simone. Um, next next one. Yeah, so just to continue, basically same vein, not CPI here, but kind of related. So Bloomberg conducted a survey of 25 economists. Clearly, obviously, it's a it's a small sample size, but I think it gives us a good idea. And it showed that uh, what they expect the Bank of Canada um, in terms of what they'll do in terms of their terminal rate, which means that terminal rate is the max rate that 
they will reach in this rate hiking cycle. So for the most part, they think that there's going to be another 25 basis point increase in the coming months, most likely in July. And they expect the uh, the max rate to be at 5% or the terminal rate. Now, the same survey showed that economists expect the Fed and the U.S. to have a terminal rate of 5.5%, which is about, I think, I don't have it right in front of me, which would imply, I believe, to more increases of 25 basis points. But without going into too much detail here, I think it's just a good reminder that these economists, these surveys, um, these experts, I mean, I think they try to predict as best as they can, but um, they've been wrong and sometimes right. So I'll just give them credit, but I think a lot of them have been wrong over the past year and constantly revise their expectations. So whenever you're making a decision that may be related to interest rate, um, just take these kind of things with grain of salt and not think that because you saw this survey, that for sure the terminal rate will hit that. I think, like I've said it before, I think it's much better to uh, work on just a probability of various outcomes and then you assign different probabilities and you make your decision based on that. Yeah, good call. Predictions are fine, but treat them as such. Just the same way that most people logically would predict as rates keep hiking, software multiples would go down. That has not happened. Software multiples have gone up uh, as as hikes have continued. So it's all a reminder that you can make predictions, but don't put too much weight into them because the rate of success on these predictions with bit with broad macro are not good. The track record is not good. So just remember that. All right, Brookfield, our friends at Book Brookfield are nearing a deal to buy American Equity, which is an insurance business, ticker AEL. So Brookfield is close to acquiring American Equity Investment Life Holding Co. This is under Brookfield's reinsurance arm of the business. They've made a cash and stock offer that is likely to be recommended. The acquisition would add to their acquisitions globally to $15 billion for the past year. And Brookfield is already the largest shareholder of American Equity with a 20% stake. They had received an offer from a competitor called Prosperity Life Insurance, but Brookfield's offer is higher and values the company at a significant premium to that offer. So, uh, you know, it's one of these things where the best bidder takes and the fact that Brookfield is already the largest shareholder. This is a $3.5 billion market cap business today. It shot up a good 10% on the news that the premium was announced. And um, I've included a little graph here, Simone, of the earnings per share and net, uh, I get, well, just earnings per share. That's supposed to be revenue, not earnings per share and net income. You're like, wow, they're very correlated. Uh, that's because <laughs> they should be. Uh, earnings per share has compounded about 26% since 98 over time. It's been quite volatile. Like you had a monster 2022 and down quite a bit, trailing 12 months. It seems to go up and down, fluctuate quite a bit. But overall, this business has compounded value. It's been a very volatile stock to own because as you can see in their results, Simone, it's been very volatile as a business as well. 
Yeah, yeah, I wasn't familiar with them, to be honest, um, just because my holdings with Brookfield are are primarily Brookfield infrastructure partners and renewable partners. But I think, you know, I don't know too much about insurance, but I think earnings typically can be a bit lumpy just because uh, depending on the type of insurance they do, uh, you know, a clear example would be an insurer that, you know, has tons of insurance uh, with property in Florida and then a large hurricane hits. Obviously, it's going to take a big hit in its earnings because they'll they'll have to be paying out some of those claims. Um, so that's kind of the extent of my I mean, I know a bit more about insurance, but it's not something I I know in like in and out quite well. Dude, there's so many of these like niche insurance businesses that trade between like one and five billion US that are publicly traded that like I couldn't tell you the first thing about. <laughs> yeah. like, but it's very ripe for consolidation as well though. Um, and I think that's b- basically a thesis with this reinsurance business here is be quite acquisitive because there is a ton of them that are ripe uh, acquisition targets that, you know, kind of grind along, grow slowly, but uh, someone's going to eventually roll them up. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, now we'll move on to different different kind of news. Uh, definitely not in insurance. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything related to insurance here, but um, anyways, Canopy Growth uh, released their earnings and they also provided an update on their biosteel business. So their earnings was for full, uh, fiscal year 2023. So they have a bit of a weird reporting schedule. Um, as we talked on the podcast, Canopy had launched a review of its fiscal year 2022 financial statements because of material misstatements relating to the uh, to its biosteel business. So they actually had to modify some 2023 uh, quarters as well because of that. So that resulted in a decrease of 10 million net revenue for fiscal year 2022. That was about 2% of total net revenues. And for the first nine months of fiscal year 2023, it resulted in a decrease of $14 million in net revenue, representing about 4% of the company revenues. They said that they are implementing new controls and changes to biosteel management. Um, I hope so, because... <laughs> That's uh, that is not a good look to have uh, to restate, and it's pretty material, especially since you know. Remember, I think it was last year, maybe like uh, late twenty twenty one, and BioSteel was one of the like bright spots for Canopy, but now we. We know that it wasn't that much a bright spot. Um, yeah, so I don't wait, know they, the how, they got restated. Um. Yeah, so they were so, misstating revenue. So the management of the biosteel unit, my understanding is they were just inflating numbers. That's kind of the sense I got. I didn't read the whole report, but um, well, clearly- Well, how about this? Maybe, maybe they're <laughs> putting all the biosteels they give away for free as revenue because, dude, they in Toronto, there's always these uh, like biosteel branded cars. Yeah. Oh, okay. And- as you walk into like High Park or like Trinity Bellwoods Park in the city, there'd be these like people that work for Biosteel or like some company, marketing company representing Biosteel and they give them out for free. Like, and they're there all the time, dude. They're there like every weekend and it's like marketing for Biosteel. Meanwhile, the execs are just thrown in it as top line. <laughs> yeah. And they have some pretty, I can't remember, but even the NHL, right? They have some pretty- yeah prominent figures like is mcdavid uh I think mcdavid yeah. might be huh 
Dude, the flavors are so hit and miss. I don't know how many you've had. Oh, I've Some not. of them are incredible. Like, they taste so good. And some of them are, like, the watermelon one is horrendous. <laughs> like, it tastes, <laughs> like, I don't know how it left the, like, taste testing meeting. They're like, okay, here's a new flavor. And they're like, mmm, that's good. No, it's, dude, it's awful. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure what, where this biz goes from here. Yeah, so basically the last thing is they said that they'll be shifting their strategy for biosteel by exiting all biosteel international business, prioritizing growing its share of the Canadian market, refining their U.S. strategy, whatever that means, implementing cost-cutting measures to improve profitability, and exploring other options to reduce operating cash burn. So it's clearly not that good of a segment right now. And if we move on to their full-year results as a whole for Canopy, revenue was down 21% to $402 million. Cost of goods sold was down 29%, but was still $507 million. So little issue here when your costs of goods sold are still, you know, 26% higher than your revenue, probably, you know, you need to, to, to definitely make some big changes. They lost $3.2 billion for the year. But to be fair, they wrote off $2.2 billion worth of assets during the year. But that would still amount to losses of close to $1 billion. They burned $567 million on a free cash flow basis. They now have $783 million in cash and cash equivalent, which is a 43% decline year over year. The company now has a market cap of only 400 million. They also said that their cutting uh, their cost cutting measures are expected to reduce costs by 240 to 310 million for fiscal year 2024. And if it wasn't bad enough, their share count has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 21% since 2018. So it's clearly I don't know, it just gets worse and worse. As you're looking at the business and um, I read somewhere just as I was doing my note, I didn't have the time to to add it to, you know, to double check, but I'm 99.9% sure it's true. But apparently they issued a going concern uh, warning in their latest uh, annual report, which is not surprising at all. So for those not aware of what a going concern warning is, is basically the company saying that it may have difficulty meeting its obligation in the short term. So it's never great. Um, a going concern just means generally that, you know, everything's good. So if you're good on a going concern basis, it just means that you can continue your operation, operating normally. If there's a warning, then there could be some some issues. So it's never, I mean, it, it's never a good thing when the company says that. It doesn't mean necessarily that they'll go bankrupt, but definitely it means that they are starting to have lesser and lesser options in terms of, you know, right-sizing the business and being profitable. This is a dumpster fire like no other on this. Every single time you talk about this business on the podcast, it just gets worse. And I, like, it doesn't seem like it could. Can always get worse until you we, go bankrupt. <laughs> oh, yeah, until you go bankrupt. I just mean like the last time we talked about them, it was, hey, but look at this awesome biosteel business. 
right. I don't know if we can say that anymore. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think we can say that. And I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we've seen EXO being bought out um, by another company. I can't remember which one. It's escaping me. So we've seen EXO. Um, we've seen Canopy really struggling. Um, Aurora is really struggling as well. Afri, I believe, uh, was taken private or bought out. So the big kind of four that uh, were there and were, you know, buying other like capacity at these crazy prices and everyone was pouring in, they're all struggling. They're either basically, you know, on the path to bankruptcy or being bought on the cheap by another player. And I think five years from now, it'll be super interesting to see who's left in this space. And I've said it time and time again, I think we'll just see one or two player that will have really efficient operation will buy assets on the cheap and uh, they'll actually have a pretty good business model. It won't be great margins, but they'll have economies of scale and they'll actually be right sizing the business. Yeah, good call. Time will yeah. tell. There's going to be uh, a big shakeup. Do you want to do this last segment? Yeah, I segment? think we'll be okay. We'll have time. So uh, still pretty early in the recording. So um, this one I want to talk about because... <laughs> Dude, I told you. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> yeah. Remember? I'm saying that because people might be wondering, Braden, I'd put a note. Like, are we uh, talking that on the another recording? <laughs> <laughs> we doing this one or not? Yeah, okay, yeah go for so, it. So the floor yeah, is so yours. Allied REIT is selling its uh, UDC portfolio. UDC means Urban Data Center. So last week they announced that it had entered in an agreement to sell its UDC portfolio located in downtown Toronto to KDDI for $1.35 billion, which is $180 million higher than its net asset value. The portfolio has three properties, one on 151 Front Street West, 905 King Street West, and a leasehold interest at 250 Front Street West. KDDI is a Japanese telecom provider and a Fortune Global 500 company. They own and operate data centers in Asia, Europe, and the US, so obviously a good fit here. The proceeds of the sale will be used for two main purposes. First, they'll be using a billion dollars to reduce debt on the balance sheet and the balance of the funds towards upgrading and and, uh, for development properties. And because the sale will be a significant increase in taxable income for fiscal year 2023, so this year, because they, I believe they report um, it aligns with the calendar year, they said that they'll be required to declare and pay a special distribution to unit unit holder of record as of December 31st, 2023. They haven't figured out exactly what it will be, but uh, REITs are re- required to pay a certain percentage of their profits and distributions for preferential tax treatment and the stock was down a bit following the announcement but now is around the same level Um, as people know i own shares of allied and this was expected so the market kind of reacted a bit where it was down like three percent when it was announced which was a bit of a head scratcher for me mainly because they've been talking about this for close to a year now so people were Yeah, at least Um, if people were surprised and they own the stock or the unit, whatever you want to call it. I mean, clearly they were not aware of what they were owning because literally management was doing an update 
on every quarterly call, just providing a general update. They were limited on what they could say. And earlier this spring, they actually um, said that they were entering stage two of the process, which was uh, advanced discussion with uh, just, uh, I think, limited suitors. So they had narrowed things down. Um, So I think personally, it's a great thing here because they're focusing on what they do best. So office real estate. Um, I love that they're paying down debt with higher interest rates. So they'll be able to retire some debt, I believe on the last conference call or maybe earlier in the year they had said that it was to retire some part of the well retire a revolving debt so that's like a variable debt and some other debt as well and i also like that they're using part of it to upgrade some of their facilities or buildings uh, because one of the things that's been really noticeable with office real estate is that type A office real estate has performed much better than type B and C. And type A is just really either new uh, buildings, so new office space that has all the amenities or older buildings that have been recently re- retrofitted to have all those amenities as well. And these nicer buildings have actually performed much better in terms of occupancy versus the older type of buildings and you know it's easy to see why because if you're asking your employees to come to the office even it's hybrid I mean it's much more enticing for employers to ask their employees to come to the office when they have a really nice office space to go to than a B or C building which might be fine but it's not a you know not an enticing space but um, something to keep in mind and Dan and I actually talked about this specifically during the commercial real estate episode that we'll be releasing I believe it'll be the second week of July that we'll be releasing that so part one on our podcast and part two it'll be on the uh, Canadian real estate investment podcast. Is this stock still getting crushed? No, it's Love done it. like uh, decently well. I mean, there's been some um, in the US this week, one of uh, the publicly traded REITs. Um, I don't have the name on top of my head right now, but um, I think it's SL Green, if I remember correctly. They sold half of one of their large buildings in uh, New York for higher than I think people were anticipating in terms of value. Um, So I think probably Allied is benefiting indirectly from that, where they're seeing that there's still potential value and the price of these properties maybe are not as depressed, depending on the market, as some may expect. Uh, One of the big issues is there is limited transactions in the space. So it's very hard to really assess the value when you don't have a big sample of transaction. So it's easy for the market to be especially bearish on it because they just say, oh, well, if they do sell it, right, they'll set it, sell it at, you know, uh, cents on the dollars. So it's not worth much. So I think that's played a part, uh, but it will be interesting. I mean, it's yielding, I think, 8.5% right now, Ally. So it's a pretty juicy yield. But I'll say it again, I do own it and I've been adding, but I've done my research and obviously I have my thesis in terms of what will I think will happen in the future. I think the market is overly bearish, but again, there is some risk in this investment. So it's not like, you know, there's different outcomes that could happen in the next five years. Even AI, you know, we've talked about it. Maybe AI will change how the way we work and potentially reduce the amount of people needed for certain types of job, which will 
you know, indirectly affect office space. So there's a lot of variables involved. Um, so don't be lured simply by the yield here. Um, know the investment. Know that there is risk if you decide to, to put money in office real estate. I won't, you know. I'm fully transparent. You know, it's not like it's a sure not thing. Not for the faint of heart. No, here. exactly. And it's not like you've seen my portfolio and joint TCI subscribers have where it's not a huge portion of my portfolio. It's just a small bet that I'm making that I'm I'm pretty confident it will work out. But I also realize that, you know, it may not work out as well. So there's, but I think the probability, the way I assess it is that it, it will be a good investment. Look, I know their properties pretty well because- I've seen them firsthand, uh, and I used to be a shareholder. So I know their properties pretty well. I think you're on the money that they own some of the best real estate in terms of office in their major city centers. They are trendy. They're where, you know, if you have to go back to work, where you want to be. People don't want to be in the gray cubicle if they have to go back to work. And that's not the type of office space that they have. It's the exposed brick, fancy lighting, open seating, uh, you know, airy office space in in a great location, and not cookie cutter tower that the the carpets need cleaning. You know, it's not it's not that type of space. So I'm with you on that. It's just it's so uncertain about what office real estate looks like in the next five to 10 years. And that's why the stock is getting absolutely murdered. You're taking the other side of that bet, which I think is a fair one. And it's, it's when it's the most uncertain and feels the worst that the stock has the best price. I just, I have a rule that I don't go on the other side of long-term secular trends that I, I don't foresee turning around. And this is one of those. So I decided to exit the stock. But keep in mind, it has fallen in half since when I exited. So the multiple has literally gotten like smashed since then. And now it's like a, a very, like a high value play. Before it was like a, a fair valued questionable asset. Now it's a questionable asset that's priced like it's questionable. Yeah. And that's what makes it exciting to own. Um, so I'm with you. I, 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 I can understand it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And obviously you're paid to wait too, but it is a name that I'm definitely listening to every single quarterly call. I want to make sure I stay on top of it. And my thesis here is not that we're going to pre-pandemic. My thesis here is that the market is overly bearish and almost pricing in that no one is going to be going to the office. And I'm kind of more in the middle here. And I think that's where the value is. Yeah. I agree. Um, do you happen to know, like, roughly, if not, it's fine, like how much the the div is covered by AFO? I think it's around uh, AFFO. I think it's in the low 80s, which is pretty much on par for them. Obviously, it's probably going to go down a little bit in terms of, well, it's hard to say, right? So they're going to have less total um, AFFO. It's going to go up. Yes, way AFFO for, or AFFO, as Braden says, it is just adjusted funds from operations. So it's, it's a metric widely used in the real estate space. Um, so clearly with selling that UDC portfolio, they're going to have less AFFO. Uh, but they're also going to be paying less interest, less debt. So I think it should remain uh, pretty similar. That's my guess. But it's no, it's stayed pretty, 
pretty in line with historical levels. So I think it's just people projecting and also looking at the U.S. and some uh, publicly traded office REITs are just being like smashed, like yielding, you know, 14, 15 percent. Some have exposure to New York, San Francisco without going to too much detail. These cities have been like crushed yeah. by, um, you know, if you take San Francisco, I think this is the most common example. But people, you know, you just think about all the big tech companies that either have laid off people or on the other hand, um, they've told that their employees that they're working fully remote or are not using the office space. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a broader market sentiment here that's affecting them. And people are concerned about where, like, where does this look in five year when, years when these leases are up, right? Yeah. Like, that's that's the big question to me. And, you know, recession talks, right? We've been hearing yeah. about the economy going to recession for what, like at least a good year now. And if it does materialize, depending on how deep of a recession is, clearly it could also impact demand for office real estate. So um, that's another component to keep in mind. So um, like you said, and I've said it, look, it's not for the faint of heart, but, um, you know, I allocated accordingly and I have, you know, good conviction in what, you know, my assessment is. That does it for today's episode of the podcast. Uh, we appreciate you guys for tuning in, for tuning in for, uh, whoa, that was a word salad. Thank you so much for listening to the pod. If you have not checked out Stratosphere or FinChat, say you've not been listening to the podcast for very long, stratosphere.io and finchat.io are are companies that show you financial data for when you're researching stocks. FinChat is a AI-powered one. Stratosphere is a investment research terminal. And the prices are going up. You're going to be grandfathered into your current price, so don't worry. Um, and this is a chance to grab today's prices before they literally double on July 13th. We officially have a date. So July 13th uh, is when the prices will double. So you have from now till then to lock in a subscription. And we won't raise yours when we raise the, the new pricing. So you, you get a good deal there. And for those coming to Toronto to our meetup, I extended 15 extra tickets. So we have 15 extra tickets. So it'll be 115. If you have been thinking about coming to our meetup on July 7th in Toronto, July 7th, 15 more tickets are now available. So you can check that out. Uh, it is a Eventbrite. Do we still have the link in the show notes, Simone? I guess we can put it back. If not, I had removed it, but I'll add it back. Put it back. <laughs> put it back. <laughs> I thought it was full. Yeah. So it was uh, we'll full. put it back. Or, yeah. So go back to a couple episodes yeah, ago. That, that if also you want the works. link. And, um, well, actually, I will add it to this one. So forget about that. Okay. Be so yeah, there's one. 15 more. We will see you there. Take care. Bye bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.